0: Welcome to A Woman's Clarity, a podcast that empowers financial professionals to better connect with and serve their female clients. Listen in as host Kirsten Schlumbaum, Vice President of Annuity Sales at C2P, and her guests help you speak the language of women clients and meet their unique financial needs and goals.
1: Hello, and welcome to A Woman's Clarity. I am Kirsten Schlumbaum, Vice President of Annuity Sales for C2P, and host of A Woman's Clarity. I'm not going to lie. I am kind of fangirl, super geeking out here with today's guest. This has been a labor of love of us getting together. I'm super happy that we finally are able to do this. Manisha Core has written the book, Money's In, and it's fabulous. NPR even agrees with me. It's one of their top books they love in 2023. So Manisha, thank you for being here. Oh,
2: Kristen, it is wonderful. I'm really looking forward to speaking today. Awesome.
1: Well, before we get started talking about the book, I have one question I always love to start out with. Will you share with our listening audience who you are and where you've been before we go into the book? Oh my. So (laughs) I
2: am a 53-year-old woman in the middle of a period of reinvention. I came across a Tibetan Buddhist phrase called bardo and it speaks to the liminal period between who you used to be and where you're going to be but you don't know what the linkage is between the two of them so that's that's who I am right now in in liminal space but prior to that I spent 30 years working in the financial services industry, half on the institutional side as a portfolio manager for corporations and endowments, and half on the retail side in the wealth management space. And I did my MBA at Harvard, and I did my undergrad at Wellesley. And I have been obsessed with the intersection of women's issues and economic empowerment Probably since I was
1: eleven, and you've also been—you've been a huge advocate for women in our industry, empowering them to rise up in their career. Am I wrong in my assessment? No, I I have been
2: very much involved, and I hate to say this, but when I got out of business school in the mid '90s, it felt like about 20% of investment professionals were and, and financials financial advisors were women, and now 30 years later it still feels like it's about 20%. So I'm very eager to let women know what a wonderful industry this is and encourage those of us who are starting to get a few gray hairs to do as much mentoring as we possibly can to help bring the next generation along.
1: I love it. We've got a lot of growth. We have a growth opportunity in this industry to help more women achieve not only financial success in their own financial planning, but in an industry that affords them time and the rewards of their own effort. So you and I are together in this sister. We're here to help other women grow in the industry as well as in their financial plan. So I have one burning question that when I got done reading this book, I want to know this is this is my deep burning question. Where have you been my entire life? Because when I was reading this, the little girl glasses, the David Letterman space, the shy girl who was afraid to speak up was like, Oh, that's me. Oh my gosh. That's me. And then as I've evolved in my own career, she still sits on my shoulder at times where I'm like, don't speak up. Don't do this. Oh, go ahead and do that. You need to be, you're not enough. So where have you been my entire career? Oh my gosh. I've been hiding along with all the rest of
2: us. And the one thing that has really Surprised me, but not surprised me, has been the sheer volume of people who I would look at in a professional context and think, oh man, they've got their (laughs) SHI, you know what, together. And then would never have experienced this kind of childhood influences or societal or cultural influences that lead them to feel this way. And yet, turns out, there are millions of us out there.
1: I can already hear people's heads shaking when they hear me say that shy girl. Mm -hmm. People don't believe me that there is a shy person inside of me that pushes through every single day. Like, how can you run a podcast? How can you speak in front of people? How do you do what you do? Well, that's because that shy girl had somebody coaching her along the way and still holds her hand today to to push through. So since we're going to talk about money zen and Obviously, we've got some similarities and we've got some great things, but who is your audience? Who did you intend to write this book for?
2: My hope was it would help anyone who's ever felt, no matter how much money I earn, no matter how much, how many accomplishments I achieve, no matter how much praise I receive, just feels like it's never enough. And- (laughs) I feel like I'm never enough, and also the flip side. Anyone who's ever associated with this this drumbeat of society that tells us no matter what ails us, the answer is always more, earn more, be more, do more, and so that is who I wanted the book to
1: help and to help liberate. So, what's your inspiration on writing the book? money's end, and the secret to finding you're enough?
2: I would like to say the inspiration was something really grand and marvelous, but honestly, I was completely broken and shattered into a bajillion pieces as I was rolling into my fifties. And I, I wrote it, like Humpty Dumpty to put myself back together again. I, I wanted to understand how I had fallen apart, how, how this person who 30 years ago graduating from school and had such big hopes and dreams for this really rich life in all sense of the words, ended up having plenty of financial health, but being emotionally bankrupt. And so I spent two years diving into that and the inspiration behind putting it into a book was once I figured out the Rubik's cube for me, it occurred to me like, wow, this very well may help a lot of other people of a wide range of ages and professions and, and incomes.
1: Sometimes I feel like when we're on a journey of self-discovery, when we're trying to heal ourselves and find how to put our pieces back together, we find the inspiration and we learn that we really aren't alone and other people are going through similar things. So I love the book and your inspiration behind it. When In your book, you write that when you started your own investment firm, you spoke with your employees about balance and not working on the weekends, but did you give yourself the same grace? No. Did you do that for yourself?
2: Not at all. And it's funny because I could see so clearly the importance of rest and renewal for them. And if they ever sent me anything on the weekend, I mean, I'd talk to them about it. Like, what are you doing working on the weekend? Like, you need to stop on Friday and not pick up again until Monday morning. And I was really adamant about that. I mean, the firm was called money's and wealth management. And I really believe this, but I myself could not do that. I was working seven days a week, nonstop. I mean, part of it is as an entrepreneur, you don't go, you don't get, you know, you're starting a business and you've got employees and you've got payroll. But what I missed was Just the complete drain on my productivity that was happening, somehow I I felt, I don't want to say immune to what I was trying to help my team avoid. It's a little different. It's more like I I felt magnetically compelled. I literally could not stop myself.
1: It's more, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I, I couldn't stop myself. That's So it's more of do as I say, not as I do, and you are able to give them boundaries, but those boundary lines were non-existent for you because you were striving, achieving, and wanting to do more. So in this book, how will reading this book transform readers' lives? Because I do feel like after reading it, there are parts of this where I'm like, no, Kirsten, stop, pause, let go. Now, letting go is sometimes really hard and difficult, but how is this book? going to help transform our listening audience once they pick up their copy?
2: So I feel that the answer to this problem is unique in the sense that oftentimes if you pick up a nonfiction book, the first quarter of the book will describe, well, this is the problem. And then the next three quarters of the book will be like, these are the three steps to, or the five secrets for But this book is the reverse, almost 75% of the book is talking about the, the problem, what what led you to get to this place of never a never enough mindset of falling into the cult of never enough. And then the last 25% is what's a new mental model or framework that you can use to move forward. And so the, the The thing that people will get out of this book is a deep understanding of the various different factors that can lead any of us to fall down that slippery slope. And it is only with the understanding of those factors that you can then implement the solution. And there's the common phrase, the only way out is through. And that's very much the case for those of us who struggle with a never enough mindset, whether it's about the external things that we're doing, money, accomplishments, praise, or the internal, how we feel about ourselves. And so it's this understanding. My my hope um, is when people finish the book, that they will understand that it's a journey and When they fall off the bandwagon, that's part of the journey. But because you now know how you got here, you can go back and revisit and ask which one of those factors is bouncing up and tickling your brain and encouraging you to do things that aren't in your best, best interest. And so that's what I'm hoping people will get is a a blueprint for a better life, which is... Life changes constantly. So that's not a life a light switch. It's right.
1: dimmer. Since you brought up the cult of never enough, and you, and it's it's in your book, how would somebody know? Like, how would I know if I've fallen into this cult? Are there signs? Are there ways for me to be like, pause, Kirsten? What are you doing this for? Why are you doing this?
2: So there are a couple of different things that you can do. A couple simple, quick things. Workaholics Anonymous actually online has a quiz that you can take. I will tell you of the 20 questions I scored on the workaholic scale on 18 of the 20. Uh, There is another uh, study done out of the Scandinavian countries. It's much shorter, but you can Google it online. um, The the Bergen Life um, Work Scale by a a researcher who's focused her work on um, helping people who have unhealthy relationships with work. I believe there were eight questions on that, and I scored seven out of eight on the workaholism announcement. But then there are other things, such as things that happened in my life. I got divorced pretty much alienated every friend I've ever had outside of the workplace because I missed birthdays and weddings and divorces and other really important life events where your friends need you and I wasn't there for them. You the, And then really the, the big sign is when it starts affecting mm-hmm. your health. I had two very severe health episodes, both of which were quite literally near death and it wasn't until the second of those that i finally heard the voice in my head that was saying if you keep going at this pace you may not make it into your 60s
1: thank you for sharing that i know it's not always easy talking about some of our own personal challenges and things that we go through so thank you for sharing that because i think it's really important that we are listening to our bodies and there's a lot of times we don't listen to our bodies because we're taught to push through
2: Oh, Kirsten, that is so, so true. Um Somebody just showed me a, a YouTube video of Kim Kardashian giving her advice to women who want to be successful in business. And basically, I mean, she quite literally says, get off your ass and work harder. And I'm thinking like, no, no, that's not the right answer. Like, I it is exceptionally rare that i see an ambitious woman not working too hard what we need to encourage each other is to know that rest and i think the word self care is probably overused at this point but rest and recovery is worth it, it's the it it's part of the continuum of how you have a joy-filled life, which includes work and financial health, but also the fun stuff and filling your emotional wealth bucket. But that is not the message that we get from society. Or when we do get the message, it's kind of like a, yeah, rest, but don't forget to respond to that email as soon as possible you know, rest, but if a client reaches out, make sure you're responsive, you know? And so we get kind of mixed messages about that.
1: I do like the fact that you say that self-care is work because self-care isn't just getting a pedicure. It is taking the time to mentally decompress. It's taking the time to do things for yourself that you are, you, you're neglecting. That's what happens when you get to that point is you're neglecting certain things like your rest, eating healthy, drinking water. And when we don't take care of ourselves, burnout happens. And I feel like women are on the rise for burnout because of this thought process and the cult of never enough. And men have it too. I'm not disregarding yeah. that. But since women are working so hard in the in the in the workplace to find equal footing, I feel like we sometimes push through and we ignore this.
2: Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that's also difficult is. When we try to slow down and give ourselves space, often we don't know what to do with the space because it's been so long since we've slowed down. And I've noticed as I've been making this transition that I get antsy. It's almost like I'm an addict and Mm -hmm. I'm a busy addict. And so just kind of sitting, sitting still and, Doing something as basic as chatting with my little nephews over FaceTime or, you know, I recently got a little electric keyboard because, yes, mom, you are right. I will have regretted forever that I quit piano. And (laughs) And so I'm trying and and it's... I find it very awkward to be doing these things and I want to go back and hide into work, which has become my safe, comfortable place. And so I think that's also a difficult transition piece. You know, people tell us like, take a break, do other things, but it's not so easy to immediately know what those things are or to feel comfortable doing them because you haven't done them for so long.
1: Well, when you and I met a few weeks ago for coffee at your favorite little coffee shop, which is just as quaint as you, de- you described in the book, I was feeling exactly that because I was on a week of vacation and I went off the grid for part of it. So I had no access to internet, Wi Fi, which was wonderful. But as soon as I got back to Portland, I was like, I'm not busy enough. My, like, I actually felt myself going, I need to do something. And on my way to meet you, I hit a car because I was multitasking and and doing things and not paying attention, yeah. and that just made me stop and go. Kirsten, you need to be present. We met for coffee, which absolutely was wonderful and helped me. And I called the last part of my vacation, my re- reconnection tour. So I was I, we connected face to face after several emails. I connected with friends. I'm like, I am so sorry for being MIA in your life. Yeah. It's not just work life is happening too but it's not fair of me to pull away when i've been a strength for you and i've been reconnecting with friends but it's difficult because my mind is going you need to be busy you need to be doing something sitting on the couch having a glass of champagne is not the best solution but you know it's that self talk but let's move on to another part of the book that i really did feel strong about is you mentioned it just just a little bit ago the only way out is through This is a pretty accurate description of how this book will help the readers. Tell us more about this portion of it.
2: So what I found was we're all unique. We all fall into the cult of never. Any of us were in the cult of never enough fell in, in different ways. But broadly speaking, there are four categories of factors that lead us in there and each one of those factors, you know, if you think about it on a scale of one to 10, on the first factor, I personally am a 10. On the second and third factors, I'm a little more of a six or seven in terms of its influence. And on the fourth element, I'm still trying to identify where I am on that scale. So the the intensity of each of these factors will vary for each one of us. But I'll just highlight them briefly and we can dive into any that you like. The first one are small T traumas, things that happen to you before the age of 25, when our brains are fully formed and we develop coping mechanisms that are in theory helpful at that stage of our life to deal with this small T trauma. But then we carry that behavior into our adult life when it's no longer healthy. And I can this was my biggest issue, so I can give you some very concrete examples there. Uh, the second are cultural influences in terms of how we are taught to identify who we are as a human with what we do for a living and how deeply embedded that is in particular Amer- Particularly American society, but increasingly more and more around the globe, the third are societal influences where we are bombarded with what I call counterfeit financial culture images that are economically impossible to match. But thanks to easy access to credit, we're able to mimic them through the use of debt, which further causes financial stress and a lack of money's in. And then the fourth factor are evolutionary biological factors, surprisingly enough, and the various things that cause our amygdalas to go off as we strive to meet our core base level needs in the context of Maslow's hierarchy of the needs. And so the book runs through each of these chapters describing conceptually and academically what each of these are. But also concurrently, I share quite rawly my experiences with them. And then I also interview other women from a wide range of professions and backgrounds so that people can get a sense of how those concepts apply and can manifest themselves in so many different ways. But what I found is if you do not understand which of those four, elements in in kind of what level are leading you into never enough behavior, it's impossible to follow the kind of trite advice that's correct that we get, which is, you know, rest, recuperate, have a hobby, have friends, focus on something besides yourself, volunteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do all of those things, but if you haven't gone through and understood the impact of those four buckets on you it's almost like you're doing those things in a rote, kind of check the box sort of way
1: that happens a lot people check the boxes because they put on this persona that they're okay but inside they're struggling so I really was drawn to the four core areas you were just defining for our listening audience I do want them to read the book but do you mind sharing a little bit about your first bucket small T traumas. Do you have any examples from your own personal life you'd like to share for our listening audience? Since you you do and are very raw and real that I would love to, if you're comfortable, if you're willing to share.
2: Sure, sure. So I'm mixed race and I'm half Indian and I grew up in a really small, very white town in Indiana. And I was teased a lot. I also happen to have been very chubby at that point in my life and kids would call me cow butt and thunder thighs. And as Indian women go through puberty, a a lot of Indian women will develop hair on their upper lip, which in India, moms totally know what to do. They take you to the threading salon, Mm -hmm. but in a small town, Indiana with an American mom, I didn't have a solution And so kids would literally call me mustache mouth. And it was so, and this happened between fourth and sixth grade. And it got to the point where in sixth grade, you know, I'd go into the cafeteria for lunch and the cool kids would spread out their trays. So there was literally like no room for me to sit down at the table. It was like a scene out of the movie Mean Girls. And I literally started going home at lunch and hiding under the picnic table in our backyard instead of eating lunch because I was so ashamed at how I was being ostracized and excluded from my peer group. So this is from fourth to sixth grade the way I coped with it was by diving into academics. I was a good student and then I'd get praise from my teachers and that made me feel seen and heard. And so I continued with that academic focus. And then lo and behold, you go into the work world and what replaces grades and praise from teachers, but money and promotions. And so a behavior that served me very well during a three year period when I was very young became a runaway trait that I continued to engage in as an adult in a way that was no longer healthy at all. And I didn't see the connection for the longest time but between the two, because when I would think about, it, and I and interestingly, I still felt the pain of being an ostracized, I mean, that gets Im- imprinted on your brain. Mm-hmm. I, I don't fit in, I'm not wanted, I'm not cool. But as an adult, I'd look back and think, okay, that's ridiculous, Manisha. That happened in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. You know, you are in your 40s now. Like, what are you doing thinking about that? So I didn't realize the connection between the compensatory safety behavior back then and the destructive way in which it manifested as an adult. And I interviewed a, a, a number of executive coaches who deal with c suite executives. And I asked them, you know, how many of your super successful clients have struggled with these kind of small T traumas? And one told me 75%. And the other told me, I think it's 100%. So, you know, this is not uncommon, particularly among ambitious people. Many of us are fueled by those wounds. Mm -hmm. And Sometimes the wounds can be as simple as, you know, one woman told me her father was teaching her brother how to use an old fashioned, you know, the elaborate kind of cameras where you had lenses and all of right. that. And she went out and wanted to, you know, a young girl wanted to learn too. And her dad said to her, like, you don't need to know this, you're a girl. And that one statement ended up starting this fuel. And now she's a MBA. MD and entrepreneur with three different companies that she started. And she's crazed and overwhelmed, but she wants to prove still at this age that girls can do it. And it stemmed from that statement.
1: It's dealing with your small T or big T traumas. There are some traumas that are huge that people still never deal with, but it shapes their future. But dealing with the small T traumas, like you're talking about. Have, one, they've shaped how you how you're acting, or how you react to things, or how you hide. But dealing with that helps you actually unpack that and find better coping mechanisms, so that you can have your emotional health with your financial wealth. And so,
2: and and the reason I emphasize small T because obviously big T traumas can have extreme influences on your life you want an example there read any of david goggins two books or google david goggins if you're not familiar with him he's an unbelievably inspiring individual who's overcome some real big t traumas but it's the small t traumas that i find people feel embarrassed about that they are still (laughs) bothering them And so that's what I really wanted people to see, is that you're not alone if those things are tickling your brain in a way that does not feel good as an adult.
1: Right. Like the small T traumas of me having braces and glasses and wearing my neighbor's secondhand clothes growing up was part of my springboard in one of my careers where it was how do you look, how you act, what you wear is most important. And so I got myself into credit card debt, making sure I was keeping up the men in the office looking good, but I wasn't wearing the blue suits and the brown right. shoes, it was everything else. Right. So we have to address that in order to be a better version of ourselves to know that we are enough. And that's, that's a really an important part of the book, it, or I found it was an important part yeah. of the book. But it also leads into my next question because the second area you talk about is cultural norms and busy badges, mm-hmm. because I feel like some of this goes hand in hand. So what are these norms and how can they also lead someone into having harmful relationships with work, money, and accomplishments.
2: You know, the simplest way to think about it, and pretty much every one of us has experienced this, where you're out meeting new people, and by question number three, they've asked, what do you do? And then they judge you based on your answer to what do you do, and you judge them based on their answer to what do you do. And so there's this linkage that who you are in our society, particularly in America, is your profession. And there's a wonderful writer, Derek Thompson writes for The Atlantic, and he's written a series of really powerful articles over the years about this topic. And he calls it altering uh, worshiping at the altar of workism, that we've moved from jobs to careers to callings and that really has screwed us up because we are so much more than what we do to earn money even those of us who find a deep passion in in our work and so I can when I, when I look at that element, fighting back against cultural norms around valuing ourselves for work is not easy. There's a gentleman who did a, a series of qualitative experiments where he invited people over for small dinner parties, but the rule was for the first 90 minutes, you couldn't ask anybody what they did, couldn't talk about work. And people have the hardest time Engaging in small talk conversation, getting to know new people without that element in there. And so that's another factor to really think about how that's playing out in in your life and how much pride or identity do you garner from saying what you do or how much shame or embarrassment do you garner because you feel like it's not it's not enough.
1: Right. And depending on the circle or the person you're talking with, you may change your story or how mm-hmm. you act or react. Absolutely. Because you're so afraid that you're not enough because someone's got this really big title and they own a company, but they only they don't have any employees. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes, right. but that big title, that impressive car that they're driving makes you say, well, I'm Kirsten Schlumberg, I'm vice president of annuity sales. Instead of, I'm Kirsten, I'm an avid runner, I love dogs and cats, and I love going hiking in the state of Oregon. it's It's what do I say? because what are they truly asking me? And it's also that question of, how are you? Is it a greeting or is it a true question? Great. so it's it's just a a, a way of people just I feel almost minimizing themselves because they don't want to look silly. They don't want to look foolish. They don't want to be wrong. Christ, you've nailed it. I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a lot. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go through all four core areas because I do feel like I want our listening audience to do the work and go through the book. So there are there are four core areas. You, we talked about the, the, the four the, the small Ts, we talked about the culture norms and busy badges. There's also societal influence evolutionary biology that was really covered well in the book. But I want to now kind of turn to the subtitle of your book, The Secret of Finding You're Enough. It's not really a secret anymore since you published a book. <laughs> and this is what you hope your your readers are going to achieve. So what's the secret? I shouldn't have to whisper, but I feel like when I say the word secret, it's...
2: Right, right. So the secret is like a Jedi mind shift trick. Which is most of us who have fallen into the cult of never enough have been living our lives to optimize an equation that is profoundly toxic. In my case, the equation was self-worth equals net worth. For many of us in financial services, that's what the equation is because that's the currency that we deal with for success. But, you know, a yoga instructor of mine told me hers is self-worth equals the number of students in her class. An academic I interviewed told me hers was the number of papers, academic papers she published and how many times those papers were cited in other journal articles. So self-worth equals can be different for all of us. But if what's on the other side is driving you into never enough behaviors, it's a toxic equation. And the secret to escaping it is to replace it with a what I would argue is a much healthier equation which I define as financial health plus emotional wealth equals money Zen. I define money Zen as having calm confidence and clarity about both the role you want money to play in your life and the relationship that you have with money. I define financial health not as any particular number, but as a state of being where you are able to meet the bottom two layers of Maslow's hierarchy of the needs, which is, which are about the tangible things that you need in your life to to support your life. Whereas the upper two are about finding in his pyramid about finding self-actualization. And it's about being able to meet those financial obligations without stress and undue debt. Now, everybody will define what those needs are differently. And so I encourage people, particularly if you're finding yourself in debt to ask, do I really need this house? Do I really need this car? Do I really need this many clothes? And I'm just picking those as examples of places. planner handbags. Then this many handbags? Yes. I've fallen victim to that, as I talked about in the book. Running shoes? Yes, right. It's We all need to define for ourselves what is the difference between a need and a want in categories like transportation, clothing, food, housing. Um, That is an accurate depiction of enough. And I want to acknowledge that one third of our society does not make a living wage. And it does not matter how hard they work because they are not earning a living wage. And we don't have social safety nets around health care and education and childcare. This book is not for that group. This book is for people, the other two thirds of the bell curve who are earning a living wage. So identifying and solidifying financial health. And you know what I say, health, not wealth. And then simultaneously investing in your emotional wealth, which is a place we are not encouraged to think about as a area for investment. And yet our the investments we make in emotional health compound, just like the ones do on financial health. You know, we talk about Compounding is that, you know, eighth wonder of the world in a financial s- sense, but it's the same thing that the time you invest in your primary relationships, platonic or romantic, the time you invest in developing spirituality, however you define that in your life, the time you spend investing in curiosity, whether that takes you into traveling or into arts or into music, those things compound over time. And that's the framework that I think can pull, not that I think, that I've seen firsthand and I I, not just in my own life, seen people use so that when they start teeter-tottering as everyone does when they're making a change back towards a toxic point of thinking, they can use this to reset in a very clear way which of the buckets they are ignoring. And sometimes it's both that need some readjustments.
1: I would say one of the best investments I've made in my lifetime, I'm picking out financial investments, is my commitment to my own emotional well-being by working with a professional. I will be very vulnerable and say that. Do you know, it flipped a switch in me and it made me stop and pause and go, what? I was handling this from a place of small T what can I do better so I'm not reacting? Now I'm not perfect. I have moments where I—it's I, I, easy to fall back into that long, long history of pattern and behavior. But what it's done has been eye-opening. It's helped with my relationship with my partner Jeff. It helps with my siblings. I, I would love to believe it helps with my coworker relationships too, but they may beg to differ because I'm pretty driven. But I think one of the best investments is yourself. And before you can have a healthy investment into a, a platonic relationship, a you know, a romantic relationship, you have to do the work. You have to put that time in. Because if you don't know what's your underlying root to why you're making such decisions, you're just going to continue the cycle.
2: And oftentimes severely damaged. Those relationships amongst ambitious professionals, Mm -hmm. when you speak to them and both sides of the couple, when there's divorce, oftentimes it's due to disagreements on worldview around money Mm -hmm. uh, that often can stem from a belief that self-worth equals net worth. Or it's disagreements about how time is allocated in the household with one person allocating so much more to work activities. And so these are not hollow words. I mean, you can look around at your friends who are struggling romantic. I mean, certainly that was the
1: the root cause of my divorce. So... Esther, so we're coming close to the, to the end of our time together. I've had a couple more questions, and I love what we we're just talking about. But what if someone's listening to us today before they pick up your book, or even if they choose not to, because sometimes people do, sometimes they don't? What's one thing to make a do today to start their own journey?
2: I have an exercise that I've been doing with people for over a decade now. And I ask them to imagine that they wake up one morning and somebody drops $50 million after tax on their head. And simultaneously the doctor calls and says, you have five years left to live. And you, the question is what will you stop doing and what will you start doing? And the idea is to e- experiment with the concept of what if I had unlimited financial resources but exceptionally limited time resources and broadly speaking what i hear back over and over again is i'd quit worrying <laughs> i would quit work and i would start spending more time with family and friends i would start volunteering i would start doing hobbies and so i encourage people because those are the big ones but to then push down what specifically like for most of us it there you what hobby where would you travel what language do you want to learn and what is the what are the elements of your work that make you want to stop because that can help give you insight about what changes you might want to make because knock on wood you haven't received the five-year diagnosis and that exercise can be really, really a powerful place to start seeing where your life is currently out of balance with this financial health plus emotional
1: wealth mindset. You know, I didn't even think of when you brought that question, quitting my job, I that never crossed my mind. My first thought was I would set my family up I mm-hmm. was sort of not for profit, helping senior animals so they live their life safely and humanely for the rest of their life. And I'm going to Japan, taking Jeff to Japan, so he can see his son. <laughs> Those are the three things that popped into my head. So hopefully, I have a little bit more balance in my life now. Kind of feel like I do. Kind of feel like I don't some days. But I love that because I really did like when you. I was having the animated picture in my head when you were saying that i'm like i didn't feel sad they only had five years to live i wanted to do certain things better i think
2: and then it's asking how can you incorporate those bits now and so you know what maybe you can't go to japan right now but you could watch documentaries on japan you could watch films comedies actions you know all kinds of different films that take place in Japan or our Japanese films and you're watching them in with subtitles. I mean, there are a lot of different ways. You can talk to friends of yours who've been and hear about their experience. So there's, there are lots of ways that you can take steps towards what may seem like huge lifetime goals. And then the other thing that people can do who are listening to this right away, and this comes from one of the life um, balance experts I interviewed. Woman who worked at the hypertension ran the hypertension center at University of Colorado for um, over two decades. And what she found the difference between hypertension patients that were able to fully recover and those that weren't is the ones that fully recovered subconsciously were following this formula. They were asking themselves when they felt distress or dis ease. To whom or what do I need to connect in this moment to move incrementally forward towards well-being? And oftentimes the answers are very small. Right now, as we're chatting about before we got started, feeling a little under the weather. And what I really feel like I need after I chat with you is a 20-minute power nap before I go back and and do work again. Mm-hmm. And so just the permission to give ourselves these breaks and what those breaks do is acknowledge that we're off our center emotionally and what can we do to get back because we can't be at our fullest and best selves professionally or personally when we're wobbly Emotionally, and so if you can keep that mind, her concluding mantra is: connection creates balance. And so that's the goal of asking: to whom or what do I need to be connected in this moment to move incrementally towards feeling more well-being?
1: And I think that's a, a powerful thing, very powerful, because people look at this and like, oh, I'm going to do it all right now, and I'm going to have it all done. I'm going to feel better, and it's going to all be great. But it's a lifelong journey. This is not a sprint this is training for an ultra marathon. This is constant work because there are gonna be days where you're here and there are days where you're gonna be back here and you're gonna to have to figure out how do I get back there? So-
2: Well, and it's, I mean, I've seen this now several different times since I finished writing the book and the most glaring um, example of where i fell off the, the wagon, if you will, was I turned the book in and I felt like I was on cloud nine. Like I could really envision and felt like I was living this new life. And then about three months later, I started in on the book marketing. And two things happen when you deal with book marketing. One is you can never do enough. Publishers are always happy for you to do more, 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 more. And then second of all, if you start getting good press, your ego gets tickled. And then, you know, the more good press I got, the more I wanted. And I got spun up in this cycle of never enough again until I got to a point where my hair started falling out literally in clumps in the shower and I was having spontaneous nose bleeds. And that was about five months into the book marketing. And that's when I realized like, okay, the body is speaking again. I, I need to recenter. And so, you know, this time it was a lot quicker of a recentering because of the new Money Zen financial health plus emotional wealth framework. And so, maybe kind of the last big thought I can leave people with is this notion that the book Money Zen is intended to be a set of bumper guards. If you're on a highway along a coast with lots of twisty, turny roads, and it's not going to make you drive perfectly, but it's going to keep you from flipping over the rails and crashing physically or mentally. And it's going to help you get back in the right lane faster than you might have done prior to this knowledge, where it would have been really easy to spin and donut out on the street.
1: And for those listening, I actually met Manisha during one of these downturns, but because I felt so strongly about her book, I just kept connecting with her because I feel that her story is strong because we don't always ride the high. We have the waves, we have the highs, we have the lows, and it's a constant journey. And as we're wrapping up, Manisha, what does 2024 look like for you? This is one thing I really love that you said to me when we met for coffee. So what does 2024 look like?
2: So in addition to turning 54, I'm taking my very first sabbatical. I am, uh, I don't know what 2024 looks like because I'm not taking on any engagements. I'm not proactively looking to add any work to my plate. And I'm moving to DC with my partner, Jay, to be closer to family and really the only thing that i know i want to do more of is spend time with my nephews and my niece and my parents who are in their 80s and see what life has to offer and i haven't given myself that kind of a break ever as, a, as an adult and and i recognize that i'm in a, a blessed place financially to be able to to take that time but i'm sabbaticaling next year so. I, I love it
1: because you've taken the time to birth your book, your baby. This book has been a labor of love and you put a lot of work in it. But I think it brings us back to the emotional health, the emotional wealth by you sharing that. Because as we work hard, it's a reminder that we need to take care of ourselves. So I absolutely am so grateful and so thankful that our friends at Dimensional Funds introduced us because I've learned so much from you. And this book means a lot to me. So people can purchase it at any bookstore, Amazon. It is on Audible if people like to listen instead of read because of time constraints. But I would encourage everyone to read this because it's a very powerful book. And it's a growth opportunity for each one of us to make our lives better. So Manisha, thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed it so much. And thank you for those of you listening. I appreciate you giving me your time because when you're giving me your time, I know you're not giving it to your clients. So thank you. And whatever you do today, do something good for yourself.
0: Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to A Woman's Clarity brought to you by C2P, an organization whose purpose is to educate, train, grow, and support holistic financial advisors so families can achieve true prosperity. Subscribe now and never miss an opportunity to learn how to become a more proactive, holistic advisor to the fast-growing female client base. Visit C2PEnterprises.com to learn how we can help support and enhance your business. At the time of delivery and any subsequent publishing, information was deemed reliable but is subject to change by the time of listening or viewing. The contents of this piece include the opinions and projections of C2P enterprises, are subject to change, and are for informational purposes only. The information provided in this presentation is not intended to be individual investment, tax or legal advice.